Church, as we continue to worship this first Sunday of Advent, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, as we uh, journey these next weeks in Advent through Isaiah chapter 9 together. Uh, Advent is a churchy word. It's a word that you'll hear uh, as, as Christians, but maybe sometimes don't know exactly where that comes from. Advent simply means in the Latin, it, uh, it comes from a Latin word that, that means arrival. It means coming. It is a, a word that Christians have used throughout the centuries and across denominational traditions to be able to unify us as we journey toward uh, Christmas Day. It, it is a time that we look back, the Advent season is, Look back to celebrate the coming of Jesus in, in a manger, the coming of the hope of humanity that was born to a peasant teenager, Mary, but grew and lived a perfect life and died a, a saving death for each and every one of us who would turn to him. But Advent also is a time that we have, we have a, another focus. There's a dual focus. We look back, but we also look ahead. We look ahead to his second Advent, his second coming where he comes not as a babe in the manger, but he comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Advent is a time of anticipation. It is a time of, of consecration. And we need that. Uh, we need to set aside time, especially in the Christmas season, because, because we know it is the most wonderful time of the year, but we also simultaneously know it is one of the most hectic times of the year. There's much to celebrate in the Advent season. I mean, the, the Christmas get-togethers that you're going to have, all of the gifts that will be given and received, the, the carols of the season, the songs that have already, we've been able as a, a church to, to join in to the soundtrack that is a wonderful soundtrack of the Christmas season. And we, we love this, but, but we also have this love maybe dread relationship with Christmas at times. If we're honest, there are times that we dread the hecticness and the hustle and the bustle. We, we dread the shopping and we dread trying to get things shipped off in time. We, we dread what it is to, to be so busy at times that we can miss the very meaning of the Christmas season. So when we gather to worship in the Advent season, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is to put down your to-do list. To take up God's word, to be reminded of what he has done that gives us the very hope of this Advent season. We see this clearly to us, not in our own experience of Christmas, but we see this most clearly in, in God's word to us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, read with me in your copy of God's word. Here we have God's prophet writing 700 years approximately before that major scene before that original Christmas season and scene. Uh, he writes, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land before the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, 
you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, excuse me, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 9 is this bright light that is shining forth in a very dark time in Isaiah's day. To understand the hope of Isaiah chapter 9, you have to understand the bleakness of Isaiah's context. He's writing to these people in Jerusalem, Judah, who would have an army encroaching upon them, the Assyrian empire that is bloodthirsty to be able to come and to conquer these people and to haul them off into exile. There is a tremendous amount of fear. There's a tremendous amount of, of, of uncertainty of how is this going to happen? Who, who is going to save us? How will we go forward in light of this huge threat that's coming upon us. You can imagine the uh, citizens of Jerusalem looking over the walls and, and seeing the, the army begin to, to come closer and closer, encroaching upon them. And you can imagine the dread welling up inside of them. Where will we turn? And Isaiah, writing as a spokesperson, very voice piece of, of God himself to the people, gives this bright light that shines forth in one of the darkest times in the very people of God's history. Notice a couple of things that we need to see as we, we look at Isaiah chapter 9 from a 30,000 foot view, but we also land over the course of these next weeks. So I don't want to say everything this Sunday, nor do we need to say everything this Sunday about this wonderful text. But there are a couple of things that I want you to see before we dive into what will be our God, verse 6, for the coming weeks. I want you to see sort of even the the typesetting that is unique in Isaiah chapter 9. Look look again in your copy of God's Word. Do you notice in verse 2 we have the indentions uh, that that follow the the rest of these texts here? In the English Standard Version, you see that really clearly. And in most of the modern versions, you're going to see that. What is it? It is the translator saying, this isn't just ordinary prose that Isaiah is writing in. This is exalted language. This is poetry. This is song. I think that's helpful. It's one of the reasons we sing at Christmas, because we have a song to sing. Uh, It's one of the reasons that God, in all of the ways that he could have inspired Scripture to give hope then and hope now, he does it in poetry. He does it not in prose, but he does it in song. We have a song to sing this Advent season. Isaiah chapter 9 is a song of of hope, but but also notice in this passage the, the tense of the verbs. We can miss this. Notice in verse 2, Isaiah is writing with a a problem before the people that needs to be solved right then. We know as as Christians that what Isaiah is writing about is going to be fulfilled approximately 700 years down the road. But do you notice the tense of the verbs in verse 2? 
this could be surprising to us. The people who, notice, walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Isaiah is writing in the past tense, talking about a child that is going to be born in the future, 700 years later. Why the confusion of tenses? I mean, does Isaiah need an a, a English teacher to be able to mark up his writing inspired by the Scripture with red ink on it? The answer is no. God is inspiring this word. And the God who inspires this word is, is, is a God who is eternal and timeless. And so God, looking upon the plight of the Israelites, sees the need and, and his plan to, to solve this problem through the coming of his son, and he sees it in, in, the, in the past tense. He, he sees it as a, as a God who is above time. And so for the Israelites living in the midst of this, for the residents of Judah and Jerusalem living in the midst of this, they, they, they will have to long for the coming of Jesus, but, but for God, it is as good as done. And he writes it in the past tense to say, none of this has surprised me. No, none of this has taken me off guard. I, I think that's really good news because we live in a present tense of uncertainty and difficulty. And I think it's good news for you to know that when the residents of Jerusalem see the army encroaching upon them, that they don't, they don't pray to a God who is unaware that this was going to happen. That, that Jesus' coming is not a hastily thrown together plan B to God's plan A of his chosen people. No, before the foundation of the earth, he knew that he would send his son, Jesus, to be the redeemer for the humanity that he created. Before he ever put Adam and Eve in the garden, he knew that they would fall. Before he ever said, let there be light, he knew from the foundation of the earth, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in eternal communion with one another. They knew in the eternal three and one, one and three, that the Son would come to redeem all who would trust in him. This is good news. So Isaiah can write it in the past tense because it is as sure as accomplished. It is going to happen. And for you, know that whatever is overwhelming in your life this Christmas season, whatever strikes you as an enemy that's encroaching upon you, maybe the enemy of sin and despair and depression and loneliness, maybe there's disease lurking at your door, maybe there's just the uncertainty of job situations or the uncertainty of friends and the reconciliation. Will it happen or will it not happen? Uh, Thanksgiving maybe was a, a difficult time where friends and family got together, and it's not always merry. It's not always happy. And so, so you are coming into this Christmas season saying, is there any hope of reconciliation with this family member or this friend? Is there any hope that all of the question marks that I see, will there be an answer? And the answer to that question is yes. God knew from the very foundation of the earth your dilemma, your problem, and he knew how he could work it for good and for his ultimate glory. This is good news that we serve an eternal, timeless God who is not bound by our tenses of past, present, 
and future. Now, how is he going to solve this? Well, this is interesting. In verse 6, the solution to this encroaching Assyrian empire that is coming and this army that's going to haul them off into exile, we have the solution. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's interesting. If you were living in Jerusalem and you thought all of your way of life could come to an end, that you could become enslaved, that that you might die, and, and you're hoping for God to bring about a remedy to this, and and He says, "Hey, guess what? I've got a remedy. It's a baby. It's a crying baby." It's a helpless child. You know, what, what we would want in this situation is to say, hey God, we need a mighty warrior to come in. We need one of these avenging angels of the Lord who's got a Thor-like hammer that's going to beat into submission to the armies that are coming here. We need you to act and we need to do it in our way, in our time. And he says, no, 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 no. I've got a solution. And it comes in the form of a helpless babe, born in a manger. Ray Ortland, who's a wonderful pastor in Nashville, he, he talks about the irony of the solution to the, to, to the people of God's uh, dilemma being a child. And, and to us, the people of God, our dilemma, our sinful alienation from a holy God, we have an enemy. God sends us the solution and God's answer Ray Ortland says, to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. But understand that this is not just any ordinary child. It is Emmanuel, God with us. It is the child that was prophesied two chapters before in one of the most famous prophecies in all of Scripture in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. You see it on the screen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? God with us. Emmanuel. Notice the titles that are given from Isaiah. If you're taking notes, what you begin to see is that we have the title of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. We have four titles here in Isaiah chapter 9 that all beg for our attention, for us to ponder what does it mean that he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That's a good question. It's a question that demands uh, four weeks to answer. This week we answer it just by looking at that first title, that that Jesus comes as the wonderful counselor. That's good news. It's good news that we need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded as Christians. Or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus today. You you need to hear the wonderful uh, news of our Savior's arrival. There's a wonder and awe to this story. When do you start listening to Christmas music individually? When do, when do you start listening to Christmas music as a family? For, for us, I, I mean, I know 
that Christmas is uh, with retailers, Christmas stuff goes up, I don't know, about August or so now. I mean, it's just year-round, it seems like it's Christmas. You can listen to Sirius XM sort of radio, and you can listen to a Christmas station uh, all year round. But, but for our family, the Eldridge family, we have, a, we have a particular tradition. When we're leaving my mother's home there outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and driving to Starkville, Mississippi to visit Danielle's family on Thanksgiving Day, that afternoon, it's then and only then that we listen to Christmas music. And this year, we're making that two-hour, 15-minute drive. We have a Spotify playlist that we're listening to. And, and a part of that was well, these Christmas classics. And many of you know Andy Williams and, and that, that wonderful classic of a Christmas song. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And you ask Andy Williams now, why is it the most wonderful time of the year? Well, it's the hap- happiest season of the year. He tells us there'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for roasting. There will be caroling out in the snow. Good luck in Alabama if there's going to be caroling in the snow. But you get his point. There's a lot to, to bring about wonder. There are going to be ghost stories that we tell, Andy Williams tells us. There, 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 there are going to be Charles Dickens, uh, the ghost of, of the Christmas carol that we're going to be able to, to revel in and to remember here. This is the most wonderful time of the year here. And you know this especially, especially you know this if you have young children. I mean, the older you get, the more you can yawn your way through Christmas, but it's hard to do that with young children. You've seen those same Christmas lights in the same neighborhoods for years, but you take a young child and you see the reflections of the light there upon their eyes as they press their nose up against the window and they look and you'll hear them say, whoa, wow. You have young children and you let them unwrap presents and and they, they can't contain themselves. There's a joyous splendor that wells up inside of them as they're, as they're uh, unwrapping presents and they say things like, wow, whoa. There's something about the Christmas season that brings out the inner child in all of us that, that can kind of be repressed. I think it's helpful to be reminded that we should never lose the wonder of the Advent season. That, that, that there is something that is wonderful about this season. And, and yes, all the festivities there are wonderful. Yes, the caroling is wonderful. But at the heart of it, there is a wonder to the Christmas story that we should never lose the wow of. The wonderful nature of. You, you mean to tell me that the true meaning of Christmas is that God has a plan to redeem humanity? By his infinite son becoming a human? That is mind-blowing. It it should lead us to to gasp. You you mean to tell me that God would send his only son to redeem the world? You mean to tell me that the infinite Jesus would become finite? That the divine Jesus would become fully human? Wow! This is wonderful. We should never lose the wonder of of the Advent season. I think sometimes we need, we need storytellers to help us with this. We need, we need our, our poets to help us with this. We need good writers to help us with this. Every time I, I pick up Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible, I'm always so grateful for her. I, I think as you read this to your children or to your grandchildren, there, there's a part of the nativity scene that, that just captures the wonder of the Advent season. L- listen to her words in there. 
in the stable amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows. In the quiet of the night, God gave this world his wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born, his baby's son. Mary and Joseph wrapped him up to keep him warm. They made a soft bed of straw and used the animal's feeding trough as his cradle. And they gazed in wonderful at God's great gift, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us because, of course, he had. During this Advent season, we don't need to lose the wonder of the most wonderful story ever told that should lead us to to ponder the the awe-inspiring nature of the extent that God would go to redeem you and to redeem me. Be reminded this morning of the wonder of our Savior's arrival. But, But finally this morning, I want you to be reminded of the wisdom of our Savior's counsel. We not only call him wonderful, but we call him wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, we can go down the wrong roads when we hear that word counselor, and we think what is our first impression when we hear wonderful counselor. Well, we think therapist, or we think psychologist, or we think good uh, counseling that is, is received and given by women and, and men, and, and there is a need for that. But that's not first and foremost what Isaiah is talking about here. And we would go down the wrong road when we, when we think of Jesus as our personal therapist or Jesus as our personal psychologist. Yes, he is our great high priest. Yes, he empathizes with us. Yes, he has walked through the pains and the difficulties of life. Yes, he knows us intimately here. But when we start saying things like, well, Jesus is a counselor who ultimately listens more than he talks. We've gone down a direction that Isaiah did not have in mind. A counselor for Isaiah especially in light of what was needed in that context, as a king would would gather together around this table, would gather his counselors. There are enemies that are encroaching here, and there there would be wise confidants that he trusted, that he brought in, that knew the limitations of their army, knew the extent of the threat that was coming, and they were dependable, they were trustworthy. And he knew their direction was direction that he could lean on. Jesus is our wonderful counselor in the sense that he gives us direction. He gives us counsel. He gives us his purposes and plans. And they never fail us. He's totally trustworthy. Isaiah would write later in chapter 28, verse 29, a a passage that illuminates the very meaning of this passage. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel, and he is excellent, you see it on the screen, in wisdom. This is the nature of uh, of how Jesus is our wonderful counselor. His purposes and his plans, Christian, they're always right. His direction is always perfect. His desire for you can always be trusted. Even when you can't see how the puzzle pieces of your life are fitting together, you you have the ability to trust that you have a Savior who has your, he he has your best intentions at heart. He has your good, the ultimate good 
at heart, in his direction, in his leadership, through the power of the Holy Spirit that leads you in each of your steps. He, he desires to lead you for, for your good and ultimately his glory. You, you can trust his direction. You can't always trust the direction. You can't always trust the counsel. I, I have given as a pastor counsel that in hindsight wasn't the best counsel. I, I didn't intentionally do that, but I'm limited. I'm not perfect in insight. I'm not perfect in, and, and we all here, if we're going to be honest, we, we have given counsel and direction that we could, if we could roll back the, the tape of life, we would say, you know something, I, I would go in a different direction here, because why? We're finite. I mean, we need wisdom and we seek it. I mean, we, we look to wisdom from, from people that are around us, and we have all kinds of sources for wisdom, all kinds of sources of counsel. Uh, we, we have more counsel maybe now than we've ever had in human history. You, you can have counsel from your own past experiences, and you've made wrong turns, or maybe you made some right turns, and it helps inform the directions that you take in life, right? Other times you, you, you uh, depend upon uh, good godly friends and you, and you seek counsel from them. Maybe a, a life group leader who knows you and prays for you and you, you seek out their counsel. Maybe you crowdsource it on, on Facebook or Twitter and ask for people's input there. Or maybe, maybe you listen to a cable news host every night and you, you seek their counsel. I think a lot of people are doing that in, in ways that we've never done that in all of human history here. There are times, there are times that we're desperately needing counsel. Many of you know what it was like to open up the paper for years and years and see Ann Landers answering people's questions with this authority. We, we hunger for direction. We hunger for counsel. But any human counsel that you will receive will be by default incomplete. At times it will be incoherent. At times it will be ignorant in the truest sense of that word. Not because these are bad people, not because we shouldn't trust our gut and our intuition, not because we shouldn't lean on others for help, but here's the truth. All of our human counselors pale in comparison to the wonderful counselor who will never lead you astray. will never lead you in, in, in a maze just out of a sadistic pleasure to see how you will find your way out of this plight, this danger, this obstacle. He doesn't do that. He desires to lead you. So my question to you is, is a threefold question. Number one, are you listening to his counsel? One of the most famous Proverbs says, Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. There are a lot of us, if we're going to be honest, we're leaning on our own counsel instead of leaning and trusting his counsel. Are we listening to his counsel through his word and through prayer? Are we leaning and listening to his counsel for the directions and the purposes of our life? Are we trusting, secondly, his counsel. It's one thing to hear it, but there's another thing to truly trust it and to lean our weight on his direction for our life. Are we listening to his counsel? Are we trusting his counsel? And finally this morning, are you obedient to his counsel? Are we not just hearers of the word of God? Are we not just hearers of his counsel and hearers of his direction and hearers of his purpose, but we actually implement it in our life? Are, are you listening to his counsel? Are you trusting his counsel? And are you this morning walking in his counsel, obedient to his counsel?
all of us at times can answer that question with no. So so what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves walking in our own counsel and not the counsel of the wonderful counselor? This last week we traveled, like all of you did, or some of you did, many of you did. We, we, we go through four Thanksgiving get-togethers, and, and we've done this for, for years, and, and we, we love it. Uh, we came back on Friday. Last Thanksgiving get-together is in Oxford, Mississippi, Ole Miss country. All of Danielle's dad's family lives there. There's about 67, 68 family members that all gathered together, her extended family we literally need name tags for, for our Thanksgiving dinner. There's just so many uh, young children that are being born and come into the family, and there's a lot of joy, and there's a lot of laughter. There, it's, it's a wonderful highlight of, of the year. We drive back from Oxford late at night. We do this for years on Friday, coming back in uh, that, uh, to Birmingham on Friday night. If you know that area, Oxford, Mississippi to Birmingham is going to take you on I-22. It used to be called Corridor X. Many of you know that part. Before there was I-22, it used to go through these little small towns on 78. Gwen and Gwen and you know that area. Now, there's a new thing that I've never noticed before, and we've traveled this road many, road, many years, but when you're in Oxford, you're out 30 minutes away from a small little sleepy town called Pontotoc, Mississippi. And 30 minutes outside of Oxford, as you're headed back to Birmingham, there's a big sign 30 minutes outside of Oxford that says, Oxford. And it's got a big U-turn on the sign. Undoubtedly, so many people have gone that direction thinking they're going to Oxford, Mississippi, but they've gotten turned around. Sometimes, accidentally, I'm sure. They think they're going to Ole Miss football game or a baseball game, and they find themselves headed back to Birmingham. So they have to put up a sign that says, if you think you're going to Oxford, I'm sorry to tell you, but you are going in the wrong direction. And you know something? This can happen in life to all of us spiritually. We can get lost in our spiritual journey. You, you can, I can, we can, we can be headed in the wrong direction, not listening to, not trusting, and not obeying his counsel. But I am thankful, and I pray that you are too, that no matter how many miles you travel in the wrong direction, you've never traveled so far that you cannot spiritually turn around. I am thankful that a part of being a child of the Most High God is that He calls us to repent, to turn around from going in the wrong direction and come back to Him. And He is a God who embraces us and waits to meet us with His love and His forgiveness. So my question is, are, are you traveling in the right direction? Are you listening to His counsel? Trusting His counsel? obeying his counsel? And if the answer to those questions is no, turn around. And no matter how many miles you've gone the wrong direction, there's still hope that you, through the power of the Spirit, can turn around and be embraced by your wonderful counselor. Amen? Let us pray.